Okay, Romans chapter 4. Verses 22 to 25. Let's read that together. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also. To whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Lord, we want to pause right now and ask for your Holy Spirit to come and move upon me, move upon your word, move upon each member of this congregation. We pray that he would bring to light what you have revealed here in the pages of your Holy Scripture. You will transform us. I pray that you give a sense of comfort and assurance to your people as we look today at this glorious truth of justification by faith alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, folks. Does anybody remember what the fourth chapter of the book of Romans is all about? The big idea, the big thing. The gospel. Okay. Well, you're safe there. <laughs> yes. And who is the particular historical figure that Paul brings out to show us this truth? Abraham. Excellent. Okay. Abraham's name or a personal pronoun related to him comes up 24 times in this chapter. There's only 25 verses. So an average of once every single verse, Abraham is coming up. He is, he is spoken about from the beginning to the end of the chapter. It's all about Abraham. The word faith or believe comes up 15 times. The word justify or righteousness being credited, that comes up 13 times. And here's a tip for you as you do your personal Bible study. If you want to understand what the central idea of a passage is, look for repeated words or phrases in that passage. Start circling them or underlining them. Find out what words keep on coming up over and over. And as you put those words together, you will find the central idea of the passage. So if we take Abraham, faith, and justification and put those words together, this is what we come up with. This chapter is about how Abraham was justified by faith as an example to every other believer throughout all the rest of the ages. Because Paul is very earnest about making sure we understand that we are justified exactly the same way that Abraham was justified. There's been no difference in all these thousands of years. Now, the, the human means of justification, what is it? What's the human condition that we must meet in order to be justified? It's faith. It's faith in Christ. And Paul makes it clear that this is faith apart from works, apart from circumcision, and apart from the law. It's faith alone. Last Sunday morning, we looked at the reasons why God decided that he would do things this way. Why did God decide to justify through faith and not some other way? And he gives us four reasons. Number one, so that it, our faith would be in accordance with grace. God wanted this justification to be by grace. And faith is the, the condition of the heart that accords with grace. Now, why was God concerned that justification would be by grace? Well, he tells us in chapter 4, verse 16, so that the promise would be guaranteed. He didn't want us 
to be uncertain about whether the promise would be given to us or not. He wanted it to be guaranteed, sure, certain. A third reason that God justified through faith is given to us in verse 16, so that the promise would be guaranteed to all the descendants. He said, Abraham, I'm making you a father of many nations, not just one nation, not just Israel, but many, many nations. In other words, God wanted this justification to be spread around the globe to all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues. And when we get to heaven, we're going to see a representative number of people, God's elect, from every people group on the planet. And then finally, he gives us the final reason in chapter 4, verse 21, because faith gives God all the glory. Faith glorifies God. Faith simply depends upon God. It has nothing to offer to give. It's a receiving grace. And so it brings glory to God as the great giver of all good things. So here we go. Why did God do it this way? Because he wanted justification to be by grace. He wanted it to be guaranteed. He wanted it to be global. And he wanted to give all the glory to God. And if you wanted to add one other reason, you could go back to chapter 3, verse 27. It says there, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. So the fifth reason is because God wanted to eliminate all human boasting. These are some pretty good reasons, I think. The way God set things up, God is glorified. Boasting is excluded. It goes to every people group on the earth. It's guaranteed. It's not an iffy proposition, and it comes to us by grace. Now today, as we wind up this chapter... I want you to focus with me on a particular phrase that comes up all through the chapter. And the phrase is, faith is credited as righteousness. This is a crucial phrase in this chapter. And it comes up over and over and over. It comes up in verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. And what I want to do is ask three questions about this phrase. One, what does it mean for faith to be credited as righteousness? Two, what kind of faith is credited as righteousness? Three, what must be believed for faith to be credited as righteousness? Those are the questions that this text is going to answer for us. Okay, first question, what does it mean for faith to be credited as righteousness? Notice in 22, Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, what is the it of verse 22? What is it referred to? We'll go back to verse 20. It says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. The it of verse 22 is faith in verse 20 and full assurance in verse 21. So we could put it like this. Therefore, faith was also credited to him as righteousness. And if we said it that way, we would be in full agreement with the rest of the chapter. Because if you look at chapter 4, verse 3, it says... For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, his belief. Or, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Or verse 9, is this lesson then on the circumcised, or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. See, this phrase just keeps on being repeated. But the big question is, what does that phrase mean? What does it mean for faith to be credited as righteousness? And there's two very different answers that you could give to that question. One answer would be this. My faith is my righteousness. God recognizes my faith to be righteousness. In other words, let's say I owe debt, God a debt of $500,000, but I have this faith, that, and, and this faith is righteous. And so God knows that this faith is about $100,000 of that $500,000 debt. So God looks at that faith as being righteous, and he says, okay, I'll make up for the rest that you don't owe, because you have this righteous faith that you're contributing to me. I don't know if, that, if you're following that analogy or not. But some people look at faith like that. Like there's, there's merit in the faith itself. Our faith is righteousness, and so God says, okay, I'm going to credit that faith, and I'm going to give you free acquittal of all your sins and free forgiveness of all your transgressions because you have faith. And you're bringing that faith to me, and I'll make up for whatever you lack after you bring that faith to me. So they say faith is a form of righteousness. God accepts faith as being righteous, and he acquits me. Now, is that what Paul means when he says faith is credited as righteousness? My answer is no. That is not what he means at all. I don't want you to go away thinking that your faith is the righteousness that you contribute towards your justification. But if he doesn't mean that, what does he mean? I believe he means something like this. Our faith unites us to Christ, and Christ is our righteousness. Your faith is not your righteousness. Christ alone is your righteous ground of free and perfect acceptance and standing before God, and nothing else. Your faith will never be good enough for you to be accepted by God, but Christ is good enough. And by faith, you lay hold of him, and you're connected to him, and you're joined to Christ, who becomes to you your righteous standing before God. Now, folks, this is not just semantics. These are not just words that have no meaning. This is crucial. Because if you get this wrong, you get the gospel wrong. If you think that you will be saved because you're trusting in your faith... That's dead. Are you trusting in your faith or are you trusting in Christ? There's a big difference between those two things. One leads to heaven, one leads to hell. We have to have our trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and not in something that we contribute to this whole thing. Faith is something that the hand reaching out to receive the good gift of God. That's all it is. There's no merit in it at all. Now, why do I believe Paul's not saying that our faith is our righteousness? I'm going to give you four reasons why. First one, look at the immediate context of Romans chapter 4. And here's another tip for you as you do your own Bible study. Always look at the, the context surrounding the verse you're trying to understand. Read what comes before it. 
Read what goes after it. And look at the major flow of thought of the author. Okay, so let's do that. What's the immediate context? Well, in chapter 4, we can look at verse 6. And it says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness of art from works. Now notice how he says it a little bit different here. He doesn't say that faith is credited as righteousness. He says that God credits righteousness itself apart from works. Or look at verse 11. And Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Twice in chapter 4, Paul says things a little different. And here he's saying, faith is not the thing being credited. Righteousness is the thing being credited to our account. So, because of those two verses in chapter 4, I think that it is likely that what Paul means is something like this. God credits righteousness through faith. That's far different from saying that my faith is my righteousness. No, this is much different. It's saying that my faith simply connects me to Christ who becomes to me righteousness from God. Now, let's look at the larger context. We look at the immediate context. What's the larger context? Go back to chapter 3. Look at verse 21 and 22. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now, is this our personal righteousness that we are bringing? What does the text say? Whose righteousness is this? It's God's righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. Through what? Through faith. So faith is the hand that lays hold of Christ who is our righteousness. The very righteousness of God. Let's look at another text that might even make this more clear. It's Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. I, I love this text because it really helps me to understand this idea of justification through faith alone. Philippians 3 9, Paul says, But I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, does this text sound like Paul believes that our faith is our righteousness? No, it sounds like he believes that God gives to us an alien righteousness, something outside of ourselves, not something that comes from within us that we offer to God. It's a righteousness that comes down from God and is given to us on the basis of what? What does the text say? Faith. Faith. Faith is the hand that receives it, but it's a gift that comes from God. Doesn't it, You don't stir this up from within yourself. You don't say, okay, Lord, my faith is really righteous. I'm going to present that to you, and I know you'll make up any lack 
No, you say, I have no righteousness of my own. My faith does not deserve anything from you. It's simply a, a, a grace that you've given to me. It's the hand reached out of a beggar to receive food. The, the man may not perish. Okay, we'll look at one more text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Second Corinthians 5.21. And the verse starts off by saying, He made him. And just for clarity, this means God made Jesus. Okay? He made him. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now in this verse, there's a double imputation going on. The first one is this. Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin. What that means is that God put to Jesus' account sin. He didn't have any of his own, but God took our sin and put it to his account. Credited our sin to Jesus. Okay, That's the first act of imputation. The second act of imputation is in the second half of the verse so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The second act of imputation is God taking Jesus' righteousness and putting it to your account. He takes your sin and puts it to Jesus' account, and he takes Jesus' righteousness and puts it to your account. And what's the basis of that taking place? How does, what must happen in order for those two transactions to be made, according to verse 21? Look carefully at the text. The question is, what needs to happen in order for those two acts of imputation to take place? Our sin goes to Jesus. His righteousness comes to us. This is You might think it's a trick question. It's really not. <laughs> it's the two words at the very end of the, of the verse. In him. Unless you are in him, those two acts of imputation don't happen. Your sin is not transferred to him, and his righteousness doesn't come to you. You have to be in him. But how does the person get in him? It's through faith in him. Faith connects us to him. So that tells me that I'm, I'm on the money. I, I believe that I'm correct in understanding Paul in Romans 4. When he says faith is credited as righteousness, he doesn't mean our faith is our righteousness. He means faith connects us to Jesus, who is our righteousness. My only safe ground of acceptance with God is not anything that I can drum up and give to God. It's Jesus himself and his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And I lay hold of him by faith and God imputes to me the very righteousness of the Son of God. So I believe that's what Paul is telling us here. Now, we've used that word imputation, and that's a little bit of an awkward word. We don't use that word very much, but we do use the word impute. We say things like, don't impute evil motives to me. I didn't mean that. And what we mean by that is, don't take something that's not mine and make me wear it. And that's exactly what happens to us in the gospel. God takes something that's not ours, and he lets us wear it. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is like a garment, a beautiful spotless white garment that God clothes us with from head to toe. It's not ours, but he imputes it to us. 
He reckons it to us. He credits it to us. He counts it as being ours, even though it wasn't. That's what imputation is all about. In fact, the King James Version actually uses that word in Romans chapter 4, verse 22. It says, therefore, it was also imputed to him as righteousness. And I, this truth, if you can really grasp it and lay hold of it, will bring great comfort and assurance into your life. It did for Martin Luther. When Martin Luther discovered the truth of justification by faith in Romans 1.17, he wrote this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That's how, that was his experience. Have you ever heard of John Bunyan? How many of you have heard of John Bunyan? Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? If you've never read that book, you guys... You've got to read that book. It's one of the greatest classics in Christian literature. In fact, it sold more copies, I think, than any other book of the Bible. I mean, it's amazing. But anyway, John Bunyan wrote this. Um, he was giving his own testimony of how he came to know Christ. And I love the old English words that he uses to describe this. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Have you ever had an experience where your chains fell off? Because you saw that you're perfectly accepted in the beloved, not by anything that you did or will ever do, but because of what Christ did, and all you do is believe. And the chains are gone. That's what John Bunyan experienced. And that's what you and I should experience. Freedom from the guilt and the penalty of sin. He talks about these troubling scriptures. And there's all kinds of troubling scriptures in the Bible that talk about God's wrath and his judgment that comes upon us for sin. If we don't understand justification by faith, those scriptures should trouble us. But when you understand you're accepted in Christ alone, they don't, they don't trouble you anymore because you see Christ, you see God as a reconciled friend now, no longer as a judge that will bring punishment upon guilty sinners. So that's the answer to the first question. What does it mean for faith to be credited as righteousness? It means... That God credits his righteousness to you through faith. Okay, second question. What kind of faith is credited as righteousness? What kind of faith, what sort of faith is credited as righteousness? You say, Brian, that's a stupid question. I mean, faith is faith, isn't it? All kinds of faith are the same? Actually, no. No, they're not all the same. And there is a particular kind that will be credited as righteousness. 
and another kind that will not. Let's think about Abraham's life. Ask yourself this question. When was Abraham justified? When was God's righteousness credited to him through faith? When he believed. When he believed. Let's... If you go back to Genesis 15, verse 6, God took him outdoors, said, look up, look at all the stars of the sky, see if you can count them. No, Lord, I can't count them. It's innumerable. He says, so your descendants are going to be just like that. All those people are going to come from you. And it says, Abraham believed God. Now, at this point, he didn't have any son. Didn't have any likelihood of having a child. But he believed God's promise and the Bible says, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Right then in Genesis 15, verse 6. But, look at Romans 4, verses 19 to 22. This is a different occasion. It's at least 14 years later. Because Ishmael had not been born in Genesis 15. Ishmael was 13 when Abraham was 99. So this is a... This is a historical occasion. At least 14 years later, let's read what it says. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. So this is not Genesis 15, 6 he's talking about. This is Genesis 17, when Abraham was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Do you see that? He was justified in Genesis 15, 6, and then 14 plus years later, it says, therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Wait a minute. How could he be justified twice? How could he be justified in Genesis 15 and then justified in... Genesis 17, 14 years later. Isn't that confusing? It sure was to me when I read that and started to grapple with it. How can we make sense of the fact that he seems to be uh, credited as righteous twice, separated by at least 14 years apart? This is the answer that I've come to. He was perfectly justified on his first act of faith in Genesis 15. And it was permanent. But then God again credits righteousness to him in Genesis 17. What that tells me is that Abraham's faith was persevering faith. In Hebrews 11.8, it says, By faith Abraham left her of the Chaldees and went out to a place he didn't know he was going. He obeyed God. He had faith way back in Genesis 12 when he left her and went into Palestine. Later in Genesis 15.6, he exercised faith again. Later in Genesis 17, when he's 100 years old, he exercises faith again. Later in Genesis chapter 22, he takes his son Isaac in obedience to God and offers him up as a sacrifice. He exercises faith again. Do you see the pattern in his life? He's always exercising faith. It starts way back in Genesis 12 and goes to the very end of his life. That is the kind of faith that justifies. A faith that endures. A faith that perseveres. It's not like the faith of the man in Matthew 13 where the sower is spreading his seed and it falls on the rocky places and Jesus says, that's like the guy who receives the word with joy immediately. But when tribulation because of the word arises, he forsakes the Lord. He walks away. That's the other kind of faith that I was talking about. 
That's temporary, fickle faith. But it's not saving. I hope you never get the impression, you know, I think I might be getting ahead of myself, but let me do it anyway. You've all heard this expression, uh, once saved, always saved. And what, what people mean by that is, usually, say the sinner's prayer, and it doesn't matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're going to heaven. It doesn't matter if you go to prison and you're on death row for murdering 25 poor... You know, it doesn't matter what you do. But if you say the prayer, or if you say that you believe, uh, you're saved, no matter what. That's not what the Bible teaches. We need a faith that perseveres all the way to the rest of our life. And if you forsake Jesus at some point, don't ever get the idea that you are going to be saved and going to spend eternity with Christ, because you won't. Only faith that endures to the end is saving faith. And that's the kind of faith that justifies. So, Abraham's initial act of faith received justification, and his subsequent acts of faith, God credits it, he keeps on crediting to him as righteousness. Now, how does he do that? I believe it's because of this. God can say our initial faith is credited to us as righteousness, but then also our later acts as well, because when God looks at our initial faith, he sees in it all the subsequent acts of faith that will be flowing out of that initial act of faith. Mm -hmm. Kind of like an acorn. The whole mighty oak tree is contained in that tiny acorn. And your whole persevering life of faith is contained in that very first expression of faith when you came to believe in Jesus. And God sees the whole thing at once. He sees the very beginning, and he sees all the acts along the way, and he sees you persevering in faith to the end. And that's why he credits you righteous. Let's, I want to make a statement, and I want to lay down a truth of Scripture, and it's, it's this. You will not be saved unless you persevere to the end. Mm -hmm. you, you will not. You must persevere in faith to the end to expect eternal salvation. Now, why do I say that? I want to show you some scriptures that persuade me that that is a truth of the Word of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look over there. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at the first two verses. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, there is a believing in vain. There is a believing that starts the Christian life and gives up, and it does not result in salvation, right? He says, you will be saved if you hold this word fast. Folks, if you don't hold it fast, you won't be saved. You must hold it fast. Let's look at another one. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, and we'll read starting in verse 22. Again, Paul says, Yet he, God, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard 
which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And that's as far as we need to go, but you get the idea. This being presented before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach is only if you continue in the faith and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Let's go to one final text, just to drive this one home. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. Hebrews 3, 14. This is what is written. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, I don't know about you, but just, I don't know how we... The English language can make this any clearer. We are saved if we hold fast this gospel which was preached to us firm until the end. If we give up the gospel, if we walk away from Christ, we will not be saved. Okay, so there is that big biblical truth that we need to just put out there. We also need to take note that Abraham's faith was a persevering faith. It, he refused to let go of God. He persevered until the very end. And you might think, okay, Brian, does that mean that my salvation is finally and ultimately dependent upon me? The answer to that is no. It's not finally dependent upon you. You see, if God grants you saving faith, he's going to make sure you persevere all the way to the end. Amen, amen. And the reason I believe that is from Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. This is the text that I hang that Solid hope upon. Romans 8.30. Which says, These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now folks, how many people drop out after they get justified and never get glorified? Mm. How many? Mm. Zero. Every single person who is justified is also glorified. How does a person get justified according to the Bible? What do they do? They believe. They exercise faith in Christ. So the kind of faith that justifies me is a persevering faith. It has to be because I know that if I don't persevere, I won't be saved. But this text says that every person who's justified will be ultimately saved. So that assures me that my perseverance in faith is just as sure and certain as my justification is. It has to be. Because no one drops out along the way. So the kind of faith that justifies is persevering faith. It's the faith of the person that doesn't walk away from Jesus when things get hard. When afflictions and troubles come in because of the word, he doesn't turn his back on Jesus. He continues to trust him and trust him and trust him. Day after day after day, he continues to repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's his life. Amen. From the moment of conversion to the end of his life, that's what he does. Amen. So that's true faith. Now there's lots of spurious kinds of faith out there. Lots of people say they believe. But if they don't have that kind of faith, they're not justified and they won't be glorified. It's absolutely essential. Let me give you a real life example of this. I, I love this example. We all love Peter, don't we? He's just a very lovable guy. But Peter was just like us. He was a sinner. And he made a lot of mistakes. And he was about ready to deny his Lord three times. 
And Jesus comes to him just hours before he's going to do that. In Luke chapter 22. And Jesus tells him this. Simon, Simon, behold. Look, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What do you mean by that? Have you ever sifted something? You're separating something from something else when you sift it, right? Mm -hmm. Satan has demanded permission to sift you. He wants to separate you from your faith. He wants to destroy your relationship to God. Get rid of your faith. And what does Jesus say? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He doesn't say, if you turn again. He says, when. <laughs> Jesus was absolutely sure that Peter was going to repent. How did he know he would? Because he prayed for him. He prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is our high priest, and we get an example of the kinds of prayers that he prays for his people. And one of the things he prays for us in John 17 is, Father, keep them in your name. Keep them. Don't let them go. Just like he prayed for Peter, he prays for you, and he prays for me. The, my confidence in persevering is not that I've got the grit or the stick to or something like that. My confidence is that I have a high priest at the right hand of God who intercedes for me. And he prays to the Father, Father, keep Brian in your name. If he didn't pray, I, I don't have any confidence at all that I'd make it to the end. None whatsoever. But my confidence is not in me, it's in him. And so should yours be. Peter learned it that day. When he came to repent, he did turn. He did strengthen his brothers, but he came to understand it was because he had Jesus Christ praying for him. And that's why. And so we have these two truths, as, as often is the case. When you come to the scripture, you find these two truths that seem to be in tension with each other. On the one hand, you must persevere to the end to be saved. On the other hand, God will make sure that if you're justified, you will persevere to the end and be saved. And it's like you're walking a tightrope, and you can fall off this way, or you can fall off that way. On the one hand, you can say, I must persevere to the end to be saved. Okay, that means it's all up to me, and I make an error falling off that way. Or you can say, well, God's going to keep me to the end. He's promised to do it. I really don't have to try. I don't have to be diligent. You fall off that way. And you can, you, you can make a mistake by holding to one without the other or holding to this doctrine without this one. God means you to hold both of those doctrines, one in this hand and one in this hand, and that's how you walk out this Christian life. I must persevere, but God will keep me. I must persevere, but God will keep me. And you, you keep those things together because they go together. Don't, don't let them split apart. You have to hold them both. Amen. And that's why this idea of once saved, always saved is, I really don't like it. What I like much better is once saved, always being saved. That's true. That's true. Because I'm always being saved because I'm always exercising faith. I'm always repenting. And God is keeping me. And he's promised to do so. Amen. Okay, let's look at this last question that flows out of this text. What must we believe for faith to be credited to us as righteousness? We'll go back to Romans 4. And let's read what it says. Now not for, this is verse 23. 
Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, let's stop there and consider his words. Especially consider verse 23 and 24. He says, it wasn't just for Abraham's sake that Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 was written. It was written for your sakes too. Did you hear that? The Bible was written with you in mind. Thousands of years later, we're, we're assembled here in this house church, hearing the word of God. And, and this word that was written, I don't know, I mean, maybe 4,000 years ago, was written with us in mind. God was thinking about us. And he was thinking about believers all over the planet when he had it written. And it was faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. That's just wonderful. I just I think that's stunning. <laughs> We're not an afterthought when Scripture was written. But let's get back to our question. What must we believe for faith to be credited as righteousness? Verse 24. Those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's the starting point. What must you believe? You must believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now the reason he starts with the resurrection instead of the crucifixion, even though the crucifixion happened first, I believe is because he's making a connection between the deadness of Sarah's womb and the deadness of Jesus Christ and in both instances, God had to make the womb alive, and he had to make Christ alive. There's this parallel between Adam, I mean, sorry, Abraham and us. So, we must believe in God who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Would you say belief in the resurrection of Jesus is an essential or a non-essential doctrine of the Christian faith? It's essential. You can't be a Christian unless you believe it. You cannot be saved unless you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. It saddens my heart because my son told me he no longer believes that. But we're praying for him and God's mighty. And God can turn any heart. Notice who he raised from the dead. Jesus, our Lord. That's a big deal with Paul. In the same book, chapter 10 and verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, same word again, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Don't think that you'll be saved unless you believe that God raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Now, the word Lord in Greek is the word kurios. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, whenever they'd come across God's personal name, Jehovah or Yahweh in the, in the Old Testament, they would use the word kurios to translate that into Greek. So you could put it like this. Those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord and God, from the dead. Let me ask you another question. Is the deity of Christ an essential or a non-essential truth of the Christian faith? It's essential. I believe you can't be saved unless you believe Jesus is God. This is one of the texts that tells me that. We must believe that Jesus is God of very God. Now, he's also man of very man, which makes it a little confusing. He's God and man at the same time, but he is God. God for all eternity. So, that's the substance of our faith. The deity of Christ, 
the resurrection of Christ, but it's like a shoebox with a couple of little things inside the shoebox. And those two things are, the, the box is open in verse 25, and we see the two things that are inside of that there. There's two things it includes. Number one, believing that Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. That's part of the faith of verse 24. And also believing that Jesus was raised because of our justification. Those two things make up this statement in verse 24, that we believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Now let's zero in on those two items. First, it means that we believe that Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. Delivered over. Meditate on those two little words. Delivered over. Who delivered Jesus over? You can say, well, Pilate delivered him over. The Jewish religious leaders delivered him over. But that's not what Paul has in mind. Because did Pilate deliver Jesus over because of our transgressions? No. Who delivered Jesus over because of our transgressions? God. God the Father. So, what we're meant to understand here is that the crucifixion of Christ was by God's divine design. It was not some kind of a tragic accident or some crazy thing that happened. No, it was planned by God. It was designed by God from all eternity. In fact, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that's what he says. He says in Acts 2.23, This man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. God did it. God planned it. God executed it. It was by God's design that this happened. So we, he was delivered over, but it was for our transgressions. Now a lot of people have various theories about the atonement. They look at the atonement as... Christ being our example of love, or Christ being a martyr. But not, neither of those two ideas encapsulates verse 25, because they don't deal with our transgressions. That was the root of why Jesus went to that cross. It was for our transgressions. He went to the cross as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation to remove wrath. God's wrath is upon sin. It had to be removed if we would be saved. Christ, it's like he took the bullets for us. He, he stood in between us and those bullets, and he took them so that we wouldn't have to. Sin had to be punished. Christ was the, the, the scapegoat offered forth to take the punishment of sin. It's for our transgressions. Not his own, because he knew no sin. It's for ours. Now the second thing in that little shoebox you've got to take out is the second part here. Believing that Jesus was raised because of our justification. Now that's even a little bit more difficult to understand. What does that mean? He was raised because of our justification. Now some translations say he was raised for our justification. And that's possible. You can translate this for our justification or because of. I'm just going to go with because of. How would, what would that mean if that was the correct way to translate this verse? It was raised because of our justification. I believe what he's saying there is he was raised from the dead 
Because our justification was secured by what he accomplished on the cross. In other words, full and sufficient payment for our justification had been made. Therefore, it would be unjust for God to leave Jesus in the grave because payment had been made, full payment. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval upon Jesus' death. Jesus did everything necessary to perfectly secure the salvation of everyone who believes. Therefore, if God leaves him dead in that grave, God is being unjust because he shouldn't be there. The payment's been made. Sin has been atoned for. That's why the resurrection of Christ is so powerful. Jesus comes forth to publicly declare to all the universe, my death is sufficient to pay for sin. Come to me now. I'm alive. Come to me and receive what I've done on behalf of sinners. So he was delivered over because of our transgressions. But he was raised up from the dead because he secured our justification by paying our debt in full. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that glorious? The resurrection shows us that he won. He, he triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over death. He triumphed over sin. Now let's draw all of this to a conclusion this morning. I want to address four types of people. First, the proud person. If you are a proud person, let me just say to you, this text tells you that you should never trust in your faith as your righteousness. You need to trust in Christ as your righteousness. Amen. Don't trust in faith. It's kind of like the Word of Faith movement. Instead of believing in God for healing, they believe in their faith. You know, They just say it enough times. They believe it will happen. No, our faith is not in our faith. It's in the God who raises the dead. Only Christ is our perfect grounds of the right standing with God forever. And so to the proud person, we need to say, Not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name give glory. Okay, secondly, the weak person. You feel weak. You say, you told me I must persevere to the end to be saved, and I just feel so weak at times. How will I make it? How can I possibly hold out when sometimes my faith is weak? Well, you need to trust God who began this work of faith in your soul that he will be faithful to enable you to persevere to the end. Your, your faith is not in you. If you're weak, great. Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong because his Faith is directed away from himself to the one who can enable him to persevere. So if you feel weak, that's okay. Just keep your eyes glued on Jesus. Remember our text from Hebrews 12? Keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He starts your faith and he completes it. Just keep your eyes on him and you won't go wrong. You won't fail. If you take your eyes away from him, yes, you can fail. But just keep them on Jesus. He'll do for you what you need him to do, no matter how weak you feel you are. That glorifies him, to take weak people and bring them all the way to glory. What about the lazy person? This is the person who's spiritually lazy. And they're that way because they so emphasize the one truth of their security in Christ that they don't emphasize the other side that says you must persevere in faith to the end. They kind of just ignore this one and hold on to this one and they become spiritually lazy. Because they think, well, God's going to take care of me. God's going to complete the work. I don't really have to be diligent. But we do so 
at our own undoing. Hebrews 10.36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You need to endure. And so the spiritual lazy person needs a good swift kick in the behind by the word of God to say, get up and get running. Get fighting. The Christian life is a fight. It's a run. It's a race. It's not coast, sit back down and like cruise into heaven. It's you, you, you've got to fight this battle that God has placed before you. And so exercise your will to get in the fight and get in the race. Don't kick back and cruise and watch 24 hours of Netflix movies or something or whatever you like to do. Yes, the Christian life is something that you've got to live every single day. What about the downcast person? This is the person who's down and they're depressed because of their own sin. They're so conscious of their sin that they just feel so down and they don't know what to do anymore. Look up. That's what I would tell you. Look up. Don't Look inside yourself. All you're going to see there is weakness and failing and sin. Don't look inside. Look up to Christ, your high priest at the right hand of God. Yeah. That's what you need to focus your gaze upon. See your Savior, risen on high. See the one who abolished death and destroyed the power of the devil and fully paid for your sin. Nothing can separate you from his love, Scripture says. Look to him. Savor him. Love him. Believe in him. Trust him. Follow him. Make your life absorbed with Jesus. Every day of your life when you rise in the morning, start talking to Christ. Amen. Even before you get out of bed, good morning, Lord. What do you have for me today? Give me the strength I need to follow you today. Help me to repent of sin when I've sinned today. Your life just becomes wrapped up in a person. Not laws and rituals and regulations but in a relationship with a living person who died for you, rose for you, and now is going to give you the strength to make it all the way. So it doesn't matter if you're downcast, lazy, weak, or proud. This text has the answer for you this morning. We are fully justified perfectly in what Christ has done, but we persevere in faith to the end. Amen? Lord Jesus, you are our solid rock forever. Let us never move from upon this great, solid ground. Correct us, Lord, if we ever start trusting in faith or anything else. Bring us back to our senses, Lord. We are so overjoyed that we have this glorious, perfect standing with you. And it's not of ourselves, it is the gift of our God. Lord, seal these truths to the hearts of the people here, especially those maybe who never grasped this before, that they can walk in freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.